podcast. This is a podcast about classical stuff that you should know, put together by a bunch of classical teachers who love classical education, uh, love history, love the way things have been done for thousands of years. We just love the classical world. We also apparently like talking, well, which is too. why we're doing this very, in our rhetoric. spare time. We're, we're rhetoric teachers, so we, of course we love talking. Yeah. And this is our 12th podcast. So Woo. if e- was this is our bar mitzvah podcast. We are 12 we are 12 now. And Congrats. so we are now this podcast is now an adult. And <laughs> so that it. feels really good. At 12? At 12. Yeah. Isn't that That's what I'm, the bar mitzvah is for, isn't it? Is that you are now a man at 12 years old. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Sounds um, cool. So anyway, <laughs> sounds like a deal. So this, I'm in. Uh, is our podcast? We have a new speaker um, named Thomas Magby. He is the dean of student life. Are you the dean of student I'm life? Dean of student life. Do That's such a cool name. I like it. Yeah. I'm a teacher, or yeah, I think it's instructor. That's a fancy name for teacher. Some people sometimes call me dean of life, and that's an even cooler name. Wow. It's not my title, that's but it's God. A, that's, <laughs> you're not allowed <laughs> to have that. No, he's not the dean. You should you're feel weird. You should feel real Sorry, weird when awkward. people say that. I mean, I, I hate um, that title. And I'm Graham Donaldson, and I teach a bunch of things, um, mainly English literature and rhetoric. And we're here with AJ. I'm AJ Hanneberg. I teach. Wow, I really slurred that. I'm AJ Hanneberg. <laughs> I teach ninth grade English, senior English, and senior thesis alongside Graham. I also teach ethics, and I've taught a bunch of other stuff too. Cool. And today, I don't know what we're talking about. Thomas, what are we talking about? Okay, so this is, po- this is a podcast, and it's called Classical Stuff You Should Know. And so we're going to talk about the word classical. Uh-oh. Yep, yep. And then we're going to talk about, um, especially in context of great books, um, and ways to think about that. Um, I had a really funny conversation. So, oh, sorry. Were you going to say something? Well, I just had a, a realization. Why in the world yeah, haven't we been finishing our podcast with Keep It Classy or mm. Keep It Classical? That's just a missed wow. opportunity. Sorry. I'm going to write that down. That's an important one. I really interrupted. I'm sorry. Nope. That was, that was an important thought. Um, keep it classical, everybody. <laughs> right? That's, oh, I'm, I'm against it. Yeah. I, now um, I kind of hate it. Nope. I love it. So <laughs> here we are, guys. Uh, <laughs> didn't expect things to start that way. Okay. So... Um, uh, as, they, as Graham and AJ both said, they both teach English, um, and I had a funny conversation last week with a student who is reading um, Scarlet Letter, so a book that neither of y'all teach. That's Catherine Ball that does that one. Nope. Right? Um, friend it, of the podcast. Friend of the podcast, who's been on this podcast on mm-hmm. the excellent Christian Knight episode. Good job, K-Ball. K-Ball. Uh, did I tell you? So Troy um, asked me if I'd listened to the episode with Cabal yet, and I was like, what in the world is he talking about? Cabal. Cabal. K-Ball. Anyway. K-Ball. Um, so the funny conversation. So the student is reading Scarlet Letter, and the student was trying to tell me that this book is not good. And I was, so you know, why why is the book not good? And the thing that he pointed to was, well, um, if you go to Spark Notes, twenty two percent of people like this book, which means that seventy eight percent of people on Spark Notes don't like this book. And that was his evidence for how we knew that this was a good book or not. I thought that was really funny. Graham and AJ, is that how you determine whether a book is good or not? Appeal to populace. I cannot believe you are asking this question right now. <laughs> this is what I spent yesterday talking about are with my real? students. I'm dead oh, really? serious. Well, we you, Maybe you'll give this talk. We gave a lecture on how to evaluate literature. And if you've ever seen the Dead Poets Society, you've mm-hmm. ever seen that movie? Yeah. You know you know that, that scene oh, where... Oh, Captain, my captain. I'm yeah, they talk about, right what is it? 
Dr. J. Edward Pritchard. J. Edward Pritchard. The, the he actually he, existed. He's did he really person. exist? He's a real that. man. Is that where they rip out the pages? Yeah, the so game? what happens is the J. Edward Pritchard gives an introduction where the way that you evaluate poems is by talking about the perfection of the poem. There's a quadrant, right? Yeah, yeah. related yeah. to the importance or significance of what the poem is, the topic, right? What it's trying to do. And that yields a total area which shows you the greatness of the poem. And so something that is talking about an insignificant topic but does it perfectly won't be as important as a poem that talks about a great topic a great topic and is done just as perfectly huh. right so that's how he rates it and i showed that to my students and then said how many of you agree and mm. many of, oh the hands go up because <laughs> it's it's such a rhetorically well put together scene right yeah. he convinces you like yes poetry should be free and free of introductions and who likes paper ripping books is exciting and so everyone oh, everyone gets agree, really into they it. all agree with this with the teacher who, who with the teacher who ripped out yeah oh, not, no, the, no pritchard pritchard is a hack they're oh. all convinced and so Oh really? Like Have you, you read love, them before? No, no, but I oh. like that idea of the of the importance and anyway. Well, here's here's part, the yeah. funny thing is I say if we're not going to do it this way, how do we evaluate literature? Because yep. I think the fallback for everyone is how much do you like it? And yep. that means that the best books are going to be the ones that everyone can sit down and enjoy reading, which usually will be the least significant ones because yes. the themes given in those books, which is another thing we talked about yesterday, are often themes that are designed to satisfy the audience, right? The theme will be love wins out in mm. the end or hard work always gets rewarded or cheaters never prosper, which unfortunately is not often an accurate conveyance of what happens in real life, right? Love doesn't always win in the end. Hard work is often useless and Sorry cheaters, to be a man. yeah. Cheaters often prosper. Sorry to be a spoiler and a, a bit of a stick in the mud there, but that's that's real life and right. real good literature. The kind theme of is often far more significant. Right. Gilgamesh, our oldest book, yep. is the search after immortality is pointless. We all will die someday, so mm. spend your time wisely. Mm. Is the theme right, which is a much harder lesson. Yeah. Uh, so I pointed that out, and the the book that I've been lecturing from Perrin's. Guide to Literature, Structure, Sound, and Sense gives the same two criteria that J. Edward Pritchard does. I think it's a thing. It says it should be rated on how artfully the story or piece of literature is rendered and then the significance of the theme of what that or what that story is trying to do. So how well it does it and what exactly it's trying to accomplish. And I, I think those are actually good criteria. And I, I, I mean, granted, r bringing poetry down and putting it onto an axis mm -hmm. and then plotting its points and reducing the greatness of a tale to a number, I think, is reductive and yep. simplistic. But we should never do what that. What they're doing in the Poet Society is like very romantic, right? It's yes. like ripping the page out and standing up and declaring yourself to the world, which is romanticism, but... Um, uh, but we ultimately falls flat. But we d but we do need to pick. So certain things will be uh, taught and presented to the students, and that's good. But yep. there's also like we spend our time certain ways, and there's some books we should read and some books we shouldn't read. Yeah. And so I think I think we need some kind of test for should we read this? Yeah. I, I don't think it's Spark Notes personally. You don't think I, I would agree. It's uh, the, the amount of people that like something. No, because mm. that's a logical fallacy, which should be discussed on a future episode. What's that called? Ad populum. That's Appeal to the people. Because everyone thinks this, therefore it must be true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think those are my criteria. Criteria is how artfully is 
the goal accomplished and how how significant is the goal? Because Crime and Punishment, you guys, that's a bummer to read. That is a hard book. It's arduous. Everyone has 12 names. It's very Russian. There's all kinds of beatings and deaths and pain and horror and you're not going to enjoy it. Right. But, Poor horse. But what the book is trying to do I the book, so spoiler. No. Come on, Sorry. is show you what sin does in the soul of man, which is a far more noble enterprise than something else. Another signifier or another way that you can that you select a book and say that it's classical or worth reading is it is some it has been formative mm. of the culture. I know that's not a of that's not a sufficient oh. condition, um, but I think it is a necessary condition that it is a book that has been formative, something that has ended up forming the way that we understand what it means to be a human being. Um, and usually the traditional answer to, well, how do we know that, is the test of time answer. Right. Well, this has stood the test of time, which is a very nebulous way of describing how something um, exists. Like, has it, has it stood the test of time? Uh, but it is, I think it is kind of helpful. There is lots of poetry that was written when Dante was writing the Divine Comedy, and a lot of that stuff is only, is sort of just now... Uh, relegated to the world of academia where you're, lear- where you're really focusing on the Renaissance, you're really focusing on the high Middle Ages of Italy. But the concept of hell in Dante has bled into uh, the understanding of the culture in terms of heaven and hell and purgatory so much so that, um, that to know what it has meant to have been a human and to continue to be a human, you need to, have, you need to know Dante. And the reason it's been so good, I think, is because he's taking what A.J. was talking about um, significant topics and treating them very artfully. And I think it's not just has it affected the culture, but what C.S. Lewis says about old books is that mm-hmm. every time has its own pitfall. Yep. Right? We have the, the mistakes that we as a, as a culture will make. Blind and I could, I could name a few, but it would make me sound very grumpy. <laughs> we, have, we have blind spots, and the only way to avoid those blind spots is to read books that were written in a different time that didn't With, have those same problems. Because they had different blind spots. Because right. they had, they exactly, had they, had, they had different other blind spots. Because yeah. this is part of textual criticism, is that uh, so textual criticism is to look at that and, and focus only on what those blind, the blind spots, spots are. are. But there's something, we have a blind spot. Almost the book reflects back on us in, in reading it, right? Right, and so we read old books to avoid those blind spots. There are plenty of things that have affected the culture and affected it in a, in a sure. negative way. The things that really stand the test of time of, of good being a good book is something that has spoken to the soul of man through a flow of time periods, each with its own blind spot, and yet it still speaks to us, right? Mm-hmm. The Inferno still st- speaks to the soul of man, even now. Yep. The Iliad and the Odyssey still have something important to say. Gilgamesh, even itself, still approaches one of the biggest questions of man, which is, what do I do in the face of my sure mortality? Yeah. Right? And that's, that is going to speak to man forever. Yeah. Right? That'll still speak to us a thousand years from now. So let's. So the, our first part will be more like a quiz show, and then we'll move on to like actually oh, important man, stuff. I'm in. I'm in. Okay, the word classical. We've used it. Uh, I've counted, and it's 987,000 times. What did you say? I'm out. <laughs> that was quick. Um, and we used it a couple times in this episode, too. But when we say the word classical... I mean, you know, the podcast is also classical stuff, you should know. What do we mean when we say the word classical? And I will preface this by saying, I googled, and there are three definitions. Oh, gosh. I'm oh, looking farts. for these. Farts. Farts is the first one. That's not true. <laughs> but uh, give your definition, and then I'll give these. You'll probably disagree with them. But, like, when you say the word classical, what do you mean by the word classical? So, are going back. So, something yeah. that originally was. Yeah. So, if you have New Coke... When New Coke was gross, they went back to the old Coke, and they called it Coca-Cola Classic. Uh So the idea of the way 
something had been before. Yep. Maybe foundational or established, yeah. I think, would yeah. be where so, I go with it. One of the three relating to the first significant period of an area of study. So, like, um, I just uh, I read the Nick, Nick and McCain ethics um, for the first time a couple years ago and then recently reread it. Written um, by Nick. Yeah, written by Nick. And he wrote the Nick McKeon. Sorry, Aristotle wrote the Nick. Sorry, I thought that was funny. Um, but, like, it is one of the first studies that we have on the field of ethics and it's foundational and it's important and it still has relevance. Um, so it's, it is a classic, right? Just like the Republic is foundational yes. for a gazillion other works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why we reference Plato and Aristotle and Socrates via Plato so often, right? That they have these kind of foundational studies. Yeah. Um, one of the others is relating to ancient Greek or Latin literature, art, or culture, which I thought was an interesting one. Um, so actually locating it in... in so it seems like an extension of the first definition, yeah, right? It's a foundational so thing, and they're like, well, it's, it happens to be this foundational yeah. thing because it, it was where so it started. So Confucius, even though he is old, is not classical under that definition. Under that definition. Yeah, this yeah. is a fun one because um, we'll eventually get to talking about Mortimer Adler, and Mortimer Adler's project was the great books of the Western world, Yeah, um, premised on there being this great conversation um, happening in Western literature. Um, so... Under that definition, no, but under that other one of relating to a first significant period or area of study, Confucius would yes, fall under that. Yeah, yeah. Adler's defense of kind of why he focuses on this is that he, being a Westerner, he, he can access the Western conversation easier than he can, than he can access an Eastern conversation or you know, pick, pick your culture sure. conversation. Um, the second one is regarded as representing an exemplary standard, traditional and long, esta- and long established. And that gets at the um, test of time that you were talking about before. Um, so something that has lasted for a long time, we could also look at and call it classic. And that's, I think that's kind of how we use it in the vernacular. And you said that because of the standard that it hits, it, it, it exemplifies Exemplary a, standard. Exemplary standard. So these would be b- books that are modern but still regarded as classics, like To Kill a Mockingbird, right? That's Which, a, that's strangely enough, yeah. just announced this week Many school, there's a couple of schools that are taking it out of the curriculum because, and the quote, oh shoot, what was it? It was made students uncomfortable, mm. which probably is exactly why we should have it in the curriculum. Sure. Um, but and that's, the, the yeah. discomfort is, is uh, what was the reason for it. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, um, Mortimer Adler um, put out two versions of Great Books of the Western World. The first was in 1952, and the second was in 1990. Um, the 1952 version, the last book of it was Freud, which is a super bummer if you're just like reading through and Freud is what you end up with. Um, so the 1990 version had 60 volumes and he added um, Great Gatsby I think was the most recent. Um, Great Gatsby and Waiting for Godot. I don't remember when those were published, but those were two of the most modern ones he published in there. Wait, so is it is it just like summaries of these books or is it actual The books. So this is fun. We'll get to this. That is cool. I gotta get that. It's uh, a thing. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But the, the 60 volume thing, um, he added Greg Gatsby and Waiting for Godot, and he regretted adding them because he felt like they were too modern yeah. as of 1990 to be called a classic. So I think, I mean, whatever. Yeah, if you take Mortimer Adler as, an, as the ultimate tastemaker, then. Well, there's always right. that, like, yeah. arbitrary 100 year benchmark, yes. right? Which yeah. means that as of right now, 1918 would be the benchmark where we can start saying that this is a classic for whatever reason. We can start looking at World War One poetry and that yeah. kind of stuff. But even then, I mean, there there was stuff that was considered a hundred years after it was written to be pretty awesome, and that we have completely For forgotten sure. about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then, um, so that's you know that was more quiz showy. That wasn't super significant. But then the second question: um, Who's winning, by the way? Um, all of us, because we work at Veritas. Um, the <laughs> second conversation is um, around uh, great books. What makes a great book? And so. 
if I'm hearing you correctly, I take notes on all these conversations because y'all have really smart things to say. Mm. But y'all talked about um, farts. No, just playing. No, you said <laughs> artfully. But my pod, the, this podcast is my notes, so eventually I don't have to. <laughs> I can just go back and listen and remember how smart I was. <laughs> Good. Um, artfully rendered significance of theme and formative of the culture um, were three things that were said. Do y'all have any other? So, like, y'all just made the decision to add Dorian Gray yeah. to the um, 12th grade um, reading curriculum. Just any, were there any, like, tests or any, like, you know, how did you make that decision? Uh, oh, I, I have lots of opinions on this one. Graham, you, you can um, go first since I had to convince you. Yeah, and, <laughs> I, and, we, and I, we have yet to teach it. I, sure. One, and I don't know if this is necessarily the best, but there are things that are talked about in Dorian Gray that are helpful and applicable to the life that we're living now. Appearance, the question of sort of art being um, an end in and of itself, and I don't know if that's necessarily a good enough reason for it to for us to to teach it, because then we're just we're trying to um, use books as um, as like medicine mm. to try to um, cure certain things that we think students are going to be experiencing in life or or, but that does come back to this idea of blind spots. That if we have if we can sort of look and say, hey, we as modern people have these blind spots. Here's a book that is talking about. That is directly addressing that blind spot that we as modern people may have. Yes. Maybe that is a good enough criteria to rotate into the into our can curriculum. I bo- can I blow your mind? Uh, requirement yes. number one, Mortimer Adler, contemporary significance. Yeah, that is requirement number one of three to be a great book. So I and, and I'm because so like the oldest book is. Uh, what, what, if you spend 30 seconds Googling, which is all I did, the oldest book is this Etruscan book. It's in gold, and it's six pages long. And, and why don't we read it? It's old. Why don't we read it? Because it's about the king of the region at the time. Like, it, it means nothing to us outside of the study of history to read that book. So the contemporary significance matters. I, I'm of two minds of that because on the one hand, I, I agree, and I think that, yeah, blind spots in books have things to say to us. But on the other hand, I feel like that puts a little bit too much mm power on me to try to read the tea leaves of the world and say here are the books that we can superimpose over the world to get the sort of desired end whereas I I teach Paradise Lost and I don't teach Paradise Lost because I have a specific axe to grind I Mm. teach Paradise Lost because every time I read it it blows me away about an insight into the human condition that I've never thought about and it has nothing and I feel like that would have been true in the 1850s as it's true in, in, in the, uh, the 20s. Are you trying to say 2018s. that you pick books that are inexhaustible and can be read again and again with benefit? Uh, well, yes, I believe I am saying that. Did you know that that's the second? Are you oh, reading man. my notes? That I'm is actually the notes. second. This is unbelievable. I so am... Graham is winning because there are only three of them. So, AJ. Man. <laughs> I was going to say a lot. Of, so the reason I advocated for Dorian Gray yeah. specifically mm-hmm. is because, one, it's artfully rendered. I, I, I do not, as a policy, write quotes from that book in my commonplace book because it would just be the whole book. Mm. I'd have to put the whole thing in there. I use sections of it as examples to my ninth graders about how to write well. It is well wrought. Yep. It is, there are memorable turns of phrase. Anybody who's after, ever looked up a, a phrase by Oscar Wilde, yeah. it's just constant. That guy has so many. He can t- coin a phrase like no other. Yeah. So it's artfully rendered yeah. is the first thing. The, and I think that's what I first noticed about the book when I was young. The second thing is that I think the purpose is one that speaks not just to our time, which I think would be dangerous if we were using it as a panacea just for a particular problem of our students. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. But as a, it's, it's something that we have always struggled with, and it's the notion yeah. that youth and 
fashion are the only things that are good about a person. And if one is to retain those, one will be happy. And it gives an example of a character who retains his youth, his beauty, and his fashion, and even his wealth for inimitable time, or unlimited time. Inimitable, I think, is the wrong... Well, yeah, I guess it's inimitable as well. And it sh- and it's, it gives a palpable version of what happens to his soul. And he eventually finds that yeah. the youth and beauty and wealth that he has, d- diving into art as he does, is not worth what he should have been paying attention to all along, which is a healthy soul, yeah. which he has abandoned to pursue these other things. And I think it speaks especially to our culture, but it is speak- spoken to many cultures, yes. right, where we reconsider youth to be the ultimate. All of our advertising is about youth and beauty and all of these things where if it was to be accurate to the human person, it would say, here's how you can grow your soul. Pepsi, right? It's never going to do that, though. Uh, but isn't that the end of Mad Men where there's like that um, quote, uh, it's, a, it's an ad from Coca-Cola that is basically showing exactly that, that like the path to happiness and, and uh, I want to buy a world of Coke. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think advertising, advertising does exactly that. Yeah. Um, I could talk about Mad Men. I love that show. I love that last scene. I loved how ambiguous, like, does does he actually believe that advertising can do this? Or yep. has he just found the new path to, like, manipulate people? Yep. It's really interesting. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I agree that, that choosing a book just for curing a, so- a social ill of the day is dangerous. Seems underhanded it seems, and... Yeah. It seems and like, like it's using ethos, pathos, and logos to manipulate the don't emotions. Even, don't of, even start. Oh, sorry. Just oh, sorry. That was the last Manipulates time. a word that is negative. I'd say guide. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> guide forcefully? Is that the... Oh, no, okay. but, but I mean, in the end, like, everything is, like, there's the difference between propaganda and mm. and raising, or the difference between propagating and trying to engender, passing down what is good from, from an older to a younger. Yeah. And the line between propaganda, I mean, it is it is it is a, th- a thin one. Like, I asked my students so at some point during the year uh, about the morality of teaching. Like, I say, I'm up here because we we will read a book and they'll be like, there, where someone is obviously being a, a sophist or using propaganda. And I say, all right, well, but what am I doing right here? Every day I come up here and I'm we're talking about things and I'm asking you questions and I'm forming questions. Um, how am I actually doing a good? A good thing, like what do I need to do in order to do a good thing, and get some thinking about that line between propagating, passing down what is worthwhile, and trying to manipulate so I can turn them into the various sort of the citizens I want them to be, yeah, or the soldiers I want them to be, which is sort of the end of propaganda. Indoctrination comes yeah. with yeah. a lot of negative yeah, yeah. connotations, but that is literally what I do is all day. One that brings freedom to the soul yeah. to indoctor that sounds like a good thing. Yeah. So we're back to the topics of the oses for how to persuade people. Yeah. I already said I came around on this one, but maybe I didn't. Is that what I'm saying? Um, any other thoughts on um, why we teach the books that we do? Um, how, how, you pick, how you pick one book over another? The more that I'm doing it, the more I realize, like, you can... There are specific, like ends that you need to get for a 10th grade student to be able to be successful in 11th grade. Yep. But when it comes to questions about humanity, I'm feeling I begin to f- I'm feeling like I can do a lot more with less books. If you can find yes. a one good book, I feel like you can teach and exhaust inexha- you, you can't exhaust it. You can go through it and spend an entire year 
teaching and pulling out themes and having conversations and having them contemplate these things without ever getting sick of it. Every year, Paradise Lost creeps up a little bit more in the time that I spend. And every year I feel like when we're done that book, man, that flew by and I have way more to say. And every year students, by and large, say like that was their favorite book of the year. I still hear that from juniors and seniors looking back on your class. Like they, they love that book and also the, what you do on Deep Joy, which is a different section. But yeah. yeah, romanticism. So there's just something about like when you find that book that really jives with it, it is asking those profound questions about human life. And it is, it is vast and deep enough that it is inexhaustible yep. then... Um, then those are books that, that the students need to do. And I know that uh, Andrew Kern, who uh, at the Circe Institute, says that he can do everything with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yep. Uh, um, and, and they used to. And they used really? to. Yeah, yeah the oh, Greek wow. Greek education was Iliad and Odyssey. Oh, I thought you were saying primarily. Andrew Kern, but you're just, oh. like, just classically. <laughs> yeah, classically. Okay, got it, sure. Those were the books you so studied. That's all they had, right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you can teach an entire four years of English literature just from and, and, and learning to read, write, and contemplate just with Dante, for yep. example. And yep. I think you can, or, or, a, or, Shakespeare, or a curriculum completely built up on Shakespeare. Yep. So it's not that we have a selection process, process, problem, it's that we have an editing problem. Like, which ones... Because there are so many. Because there are so many. Yeah. But isn't that kind of great? Like, yeah. there are that many great books to read through. Mm-hmm. Um, to bring... So... Um, AJ told the story last week at the beginning of the episode, but my introduction to Veritas was um, my wife and I were going through premarital counseling, so we were engaged and we were about to get married, and we were randomly paired with uh, Troy and Stevie Schuknecht, who Troy is the head of the School of Rhetoric and Stevie is the college advisor for School of Rhetoric. Um, we were randomly paired together. Um, first time meeting them was at a Thai restaurant down, um, in South Austin, and then like the second or third meeting um, I was just kind of talking about what I was reading and I'd I'd read Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book which is a really good book Um, and I'd started getting into his um, great books of the western world and I was just describing like man there are all these great ideas that I was never introduced to in school Um, and it just it just seemed like a travesty like I'd been through um, you know the first 12 years of, of regular school and then four years of undergrad um, I'd started a, uh, a master's program at UT, and I'd just never been introduced to these great ideas, these great works of literature. Um, and I was just, you know, bemoaning that fact. And um, I, I said this last week, but um, Troy was like, you, you do realize I work at that exact school. Like, are you messing with me right now? And I was like, no, like, I really wish that there was a school like this. Um, and then a few years later, I came to work at the school, and I'm very thankful for it. Yeah, seriously. Um, uh, it, it makes me think also, um, Graham gave a talk last year. Um, it was in intro to ninth grade for eighth grade parent talk and he made this comment about the school of rhetoric that so i have no recollection of that. then it's, it was a great it's really stuck with me um wow. so at the school at veritas we're separated into grammar school which is you know elementary it's first through fourth uh, pre-k through fourth sorry um as the school of logic the middle school so fifth through eighth and then the school of rhetoric which is ninth through twelve but what happens when you graduate from the school of rhetoric you don't leave rhetoric like you're still in the school of rhetoric you're all school of rhetoric right now aj and i and you as men in our 30s we are still rhetoric students no man i'm retired (laughs) i'm done with it um 32 i'm done i'm out (laughs) i'm only 28 so i still have a few more oh i apologize (laughs) oh my goodness that's embarrassing Uh, on my part sorry thomas um you look wait wait no that's not helpful either i look old it's okay i get that all the time um I was about to tell an embarrassing story about being thought whatever okay so um, but what does it mean to be in the school of rhetoric Um, 
I think Mortimer Adler gives us kind of some direction at what an answer to that is. Okay, great books of the Western world. Um, he, uh, he had three criteria for considering a book great. And we've covered two of them because Graham is a genius. Um, and AJ, I'll give you credit for the third one. So you're on the scoreboard. I hate this. <laughs> so his first requirement is that a, a, a great book must have contemporary significance. So he, whatever. It's a thing that boggles my mind every time I read the Bible or read uh, the Greeks that I can read it and still understand the ideas that they're talking about. We're separated by all these hundreds or thousands, whatever, of years. And but I a can, man is a man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, that boggles my mind every time I think about it. We that. like to think of the ancients as simplistic and primitive, but they're not. They're they're not. Yeah. They're the same. Or even you all are you all in the Iliad right now? You just about to start it. So like the the rich interior life that they are are having in the midst of battle. Like I can identify with that interior life even if I'm not stabbing people with spears. Like there's a commonality to the to me and the characters. Well, you're stabbing people with emails. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah, good. Um, the second one is that a book must be inexhaustible, and in it which means it can be read, read again and again with benefit, which I think is a nice. Um, uh, addition to say with benefit because you can read anything over and over. That's Paradise Lost. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of what you're describing of like every time you go back to it, there's something new that you can um, go through in there. It's worth reading over and over again. And I'm sure we're all thinking of books that we've done this with, right? Yeah. I've, I've read Till We Have Faces a mm -hmm. bunch of times. Uh, another C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters, I've read a bunch of times. This is my gazillionth time through the Iliad and I always find something new. Yeah. Same with Dorian Gray, same with Crime and Punishment. Mm -hmm. I feel like I actually understood stand Crime and Punishment now the third time After through. Reading, yeah, that many times mm -hmm. through. Yeah. yeah. Be, uh, was it Mark Twain who had the quip that if you've read a, a great book only once, you, you've never read it at all? That might have been a Lewis quote, but I think there's something to that. Um, yeah. So the third one is that a book is relevant to a large number of great ideas and great issues that have occupied the minds of thinking individuals for the last 25 centuries. And that, I think this is what I was trying to get yeah. at with uh, has influenced culture. I think that's a way better play. Way, because <laughs> like AJ pointed out, things can influence culture and not be beneficial. Yep. Like, you know, Star Wars has influenced, well, I don't know, maybe Star Wars is classical. But, it's not um, old enough to be classical. But, but, but music can, yeah. be, can be influential, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's done the other criteria of what you pointed out. So I think the way that, that, that Adler phrased it there is really helpful. Yeah. And the way he thought about this third requirement of large number of great ideas is he straight up came up with a list of the great ideas, and he calls it the great conversation. And so um, this is the way that Veritas teaches history and English, and I think it is so helpful. We teach chronologically, it, which I say that, and it sounds really simple, but that's not usually how it's taught. Um, I was taught... Um, Subject by subject? Subject by subject, yeah. And so like my sciences didn't go together in any like specific way. My Englishes were just kind of... You know, these are these books are appropriate for you as ninth grade. These are appropriate for tenth, eleventh, twelfth. That's probably bad. I, I look back on my English classes and they, uh, they were okay. If anyone's ever listening to these, Miss Posick, you're great. Uh, Miss Witcher, you're great. Mine but. had to be. You have to ha in Canadian public school. You have to have a certain amount that is Canadian content. Mm. So we're like, all right, here's our Canadian book. And they're <laughs> read this book about like how sad we are on the snow. Oh, that doesn't sound like. Oh, fun. every Canadian book is our literature. So our great metaphor is. Snow is death, <laughs> and we live in the midst of it. <laughs> that, that's something that people actually say this in Canada? Is, this, oh, is, okay. this is like every metaphor in every Canadian book. Sounds like a sad place. Our books are sad, okay. but, our, but our people are jolly. People are it's like, we're like Irish. It's, it's your, like that's Irish. your therapy. You, yeah. you, you write all your sad stuff so you can feel happy the rest of the time <laughs> and right. be nice to everyone. That's right. Um, though, uh, to Graham's point, um, this kind of like requirement of there being people from a certain place included in literature, Mortimer Adler had zero concern for that and has lots of quotes um, saying that, and they're not very nice quotes. So they're, not being, they're being referenced but not being 
quoted here. Um, he only cared about those three criteria. He didn't care where mm. the books came from, who wrote them, any of those things. It was just the content of the work itself that he was focused on. Mm. Um, and so I, I think this gets at um, kind of this idea of what does it mean to be in the School of Rhetoric, even though I'm, what year is it? 2017. I'm 10 years removed from high school and however many years removed from undergrad, but I'm still in the School of Rhetoric. What does that mean? It means I've joined into this great conversation. I've been educated up in such a way that I can access basically any classic book ever written, which is kind of a weird thing to think about, um, and contribute to the ideas in it, or at least understand the ideas that have been covered for the last 25 centuries. This is my why, just if we want to go back to the idea or the image of um, that movie, Dead Poet Society, this has always been my beef with that kind of romantic idea is because we're all part of the great conversation yep. and thinking about it and then contributing to the great conversation is very important but in that movie and in the romantic sort of mindset is you don't need to concern yourself with what has happened before yeah. you just need to stand up and give your own voice or yeah. give your own verse and the, the big thing that they romanticize in the movie is that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse but you can do that without ever actually having to know what came before you. All that matters is that you can do it loudly on top of a desk. Which makes for a really, if we're thinking about this in the in the metaphor of a play, that would make for a terrible play. play. If yeah. every character yeah. came on and is like, I'm going to talk about football. And yeah. then the next person came on and talked about something completely different. Shoes, I love shoes. Yeah, the, the way you make a good play is continuity. And yeah. so if you stand up and just holler about whatever, you're not helping. Yeah. So that, I mean, and this is why... Uh, this is why, as as the great conversation continues, are the great books that have been produced later are filled with allusions. Yes, to those early. So works. Dante is alluding to things gone before. Uh, Milton is alluding. Shakespeare's alluding. Um, I think. I think Eliot's Wasteland is in the running for it because of its literary allusions mm. to the classical world. Because it is it it is in contact with the world that has come before this great conversation whereas somebody that comes in and says I want to say something new completely stripped of all history I want to come in and say this this new thing that has never been said before is going to have such a short shelf life and yep. is going to not not be in at all relevant and, in 20 years. And most likely, they won't be saying something new mm -hmm. right. at yeah. all. Yeah. They, yeah. Because they don't know history, they will be shouting to the rooftops something that has been said before, and it's and been said, said better. better. Yep. And but, and you, they'll miss the content of several other things. Like I'm, I'm, There's a reference in Shakespeare that I missed up until this <laughs> year, up until I read The, the Republic, and it, it was when Brutus is in his garden considering his assassination of Caesar, and he says, between the conception of a horrible deed and its inaction, the 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 body of man suffers like a state, a little insurrection, ah. right? And I had missed wow. that he was there alluding to Plato and the man as uh, as a state, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have the emotions and you have the will and you have the. I had missed that entirely, yeah. and so now I get to teach my students about this great connection between Shakespeare, who clearly has read Plato and is making an allusion to the Republic there. And the fun thing is that even if he hadn't read Plato, it was enough in the conversation, and he had read enough people who had read Plato, that that you you can get in, in the conversation without actually having to read everything. Right. Yeah. Like, I've maybe read The Republic once or twice in my life, but you've read so many things that have referenced The Republic that those ideas are bouncing around in your head and soul that, yeah. that when you go back and you actually do read it, you, 
not only are you like, ah, this is familiar, you also are like, whoa, that's not what I thought it meant, and yeah. then you and then you read it and yeah. yeah even Nietzsche's writing was yeah. co- pieces of it were covered in the Republic, and so if you've read Nietzsche, you have probably read at least a piece sure. or a, a perspective of the Republic. Mm-hmm. And that's in in the great books. Nietzsche is the the end of the, the philosophical conversation, or at least the. Oh, that's course, I know, depressing. That's the so, oh. but whatever. That's the funny thing about getting to the twentieth century is like it's all kind of depressing. Yeah. So happy happy times. Um, I didn't finish my thought on history and why we teach in, in English the way that we teach it. So. So we teach chronologically. So um, AJ teaches ninth grade, which is the, uh, is it classics or the ancients? What's the, the ancient fancy world. Word? Ancient world, is that what you call it? Ancient. And what do you call sophomore? Yeah, Foundations. so sophomore English gets a little weird, but it's, it, tra- in, most tra- in most classical English curriculums, it should be the Middle Ages yep. up until somewhere in the Renaissance. Eleventh should be Renaissance and early modern, and then seniors should be modern. modern. But we do. But a, we do an American specific eleventh grade to pair with U.S. history. To pair with U.S. history. Yeah. So our tenth grade, we read, like, uh, the first thing we read is Chaucer, mm. and the last thing we read is Aldous Huxley. <laughs> so we go from <laughs> that's unbelievable. We go from like you know the thirteenth century, fourteenth century, all the way up to the nineteen thirties. Yeah. So it's a little. It's a pretty big swath so we, of literature. There's huge, huge chunks that are cut out. Sure. So for and, sure. and have to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what that means is that um, students reading um, uh, Brave New World in Graham's class should be influenced by having read the Iliad and the Odyssey in AJ's class. So the ideas build on each other. I think one of the best examples of this is in AJ's class, they read Julius Caesar and they read the Inferno. Um, and it, I, I subbed in his class once and it was when they were talking about Julius Caesar uh, and they were talking about Brutus and the question was, did Brutus act nobly? Um, and the class was pretty evenly split. I don't know if you're, is that usually what you see from them? Yeah, they're very American. Sure. And so the idea of deposing someone who could be a tyrant is usually is very attractive. Okay? It's it's usually attractive to them, right? Well, they don't they don't like the idea of a king or emperor just because they're they're very democratic. Sure. And they usually err on the side of Brutus was doing something noble. And I can note for them that that ended up plunging a re- otherwise stable state into a a civil chaos. war, yep. and it meant complete chaos. So do they get upset that Brutus is being eternally munched on in the center of hell? Yeah, so the question then is, so that's one point in the conversation is the story of Caesar, but then Dante, looking back on that story, has an interpretation. And where does he put Brutus in he's, the Inferno? Treachery, he's right being in continuously eaten in one of Satan's mouths, along but, with Cassius, the other and Judas, assassin, and Judas. and Judas, the guy who betrayed what is he, Jesus. What is he being punished for? Betrayal of lords. Isn't that fun? So it's not. It's not the outcome. It's not whatever. This is. Yeah, let's I talk know. about ethics. It's not about the outcome. It's not the. Um, it's not utilitarian. It's deontological. It's the act itself, whether it was right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. Dante coming very strongly on the side of that was just a wrong act. He even places betrayal of lords beyond betrayal of family. It is worse to betray yeah. your ruler than it is to betray your mom. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, that's why I'm glad they get that in the course of one year. I guess my question, like, does that change how they look back on Julius Caesar? That this Dante guy had a pretty strong opinion about that? Typically, they're, they get grumpy at Dante mm. for, for placing it there, and they take issue with betrayal of lords being beyond betrayal of family. They, they, they don't think that that is a, a fair placement of that sin. Blind and spot. I remind them that... Maybe, what, this, blind spot, maybe this is a cultural blind spot. Yep. That's the reason on, why we have them struggle, wrestle with it. But it could be on either side. It could, it could be on either yeah, side. Yeah, and so it's an, it's an yeah. American blind spot. We yeah. think the Lord and 
we, we, we tend to think the relationship between a lord or ruler and his subjects yeah. is always one of subjugation, yeah. that the ruler is always abusing those underneath him and is always corrupt. Like, for some reason, that's what we think, yeah. but that's not the way the medieval man thought. If yeah. you gave your sword to a ruler, you had an obligation and you served him, and then he in turn was supposed to serve He's you. He's a servant. He is, yeah. You, yeah, you are, it is this like cross-serving thing in the same way that God serves us by dying for us, and we serve God because He is God. Yeah, that was the model that in the Middle the Ages, yeah. and even even in the Barbarian, right? The yeah. Beowulf, the story of Beowulf. When you are a a warlord and you have your thanes, you serve them by giving them wealth and by doling out all of the treasure, mm-hmm. and by providing a home for them and dealing well with all of the other all the other tribes nearby, and they fight for you. That's who are you that's the deal. Thanes. Exactly. <laughs> you have your th- and, yeah, yeah. Good and point. you are sworn to your ruler almost as much as you are sworn to your family, yeah. perhaps even much more so. Yeah. And that's I don't think this is possible, but maybe the ideal is that a, a book is read on its own terms in that you start with the Iliad and the Odyssey and then you are moving progressively through time, not viewing it from my my modern lens, which this is the part that's impossible. Like you almost have to remove yourself from it and read it only as um, there is all that cultural context around it that matters to it mm-hmm. that might not apply to my current day. I don't know. But the more the more ancient stuff you read, the more older books th- you read, the less likely you are to fall into the common pitfalls. Yep. Right? I mean, that's that's Good. the whole point. That's why we do it. It's yep. not that we can't escape this modern idea. It's yep. we read the old books to escape it. Yep. Yeah. I guess that's the um, analogy of the the man in the cave. That's the job of philosophy mm-hmm. is to remove you from seeing just the images to getting to the real world. Um, uh, just. I don't know, to move toward wrapping up. Um, the great conversations, so if you were to go and buy the great books, it's from Encycl- it's Encyclopedia Britannica that owns it. Um, I'm looking at the 1952 version, and they have 102 great ideas. I think they added a 103rd, and I don't remember what it is. But um, straight up, the great books, it, it, it's copies of what Mortimer Adler and his team considered those great books. Um, I, Can you give me some examples of these great ideas? The, the 103rd yes, was the George, yeah, Foreman, the George Foreman. The George Foreman Grill yeah, was 103. <laughs> so um, that is a that is a great idea. It drains idea. the fat. Yep. Yeah, it drains. It, what is it? What is it, it cuts the fat, yeah. right? Cuts the fat. I mean, uh, Graham has mentioned his pig farmer before, so bacon obviously is one of these great ideas. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the most important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in our last episode, AJ made reference to. Um, I was raising problems with ethos and pathos because I'm just Spock and I like logic. And he referenced something about how emotions the many. are um, seen as the animal side of a person. The first two ideas are angel and animal. Angel, um, okay, so whew, great books. The, there are 60 of them in the most current version. The first, um, the first book is an intro, and then the second and third are these things called the syntopicon. Um, and they are these books of essays um, about these great ideas. And what it's trying to do is track how that idea has changed over time. And they're, they're fascinating essays. Um, I, I had opened up to a page on change, which ends up talking about motion, which sounds really boring, but is it, it's just a super interesting idea. Um, but the first two in there are angel and animal. Um, and the, those, those essays are about how um, angel is typically thought of as the spiritual side of man and animal as the physical side of man, thereby man being the combination of those two. The question then Body, be- soul, composite. Yes. So the question then being, should we be fully angel? Should, what is it to be too much animal? Um, those are the ideas being referenced there. Um, I could read through, I mean, aristocracy, art, astronomy, uh, beauty, cause, citizen, constitution, happiness, uh, honor, idea, immortality, uh, God, emotion, uh, life and death. Um, there are two books. I just I, I switched to the next one. Mathematics. 
because there are uh, these are two English teachers we have here. There are these other fields. Math. Yeah, math is one. Science is another. Sounds lame. And they're included in the great books because um, you know the classical philosopher is not just. Um, writing things that no one reads, they're doing um, like empiricism. Mm-hmm. And the, the classical artist, by the way, is yes, a mathematician. Is a right? Right. Mm-hmm. Every, every classical artist was using math tricks and geometry tricks and also an architect and mm-hmm. at least the, the greats. And yep. so thinking of the artist as someone who hates math and can't do math and can't write is... Modern. Is, is very modern, yeah. right? The, the, the subjects inform each other and you do your best work when you are plunged into all mm. of them. My biggest pet peeve is, oh, Donaldson, I'm just not an English guy. Like, we'll buckle up. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a science, I'm a science kid. Mm-mm. I was like, you just, fly. you just spoke with a certain language, and what was that language <laughs> you just used? Um, but, but again, so there are 102 of them. Um, there's one on opinion that I found really uh, powerful for how to understand what is opinion and what is a question of fact and what it means to have different opinions. Can I read that? You should. Um, we have a copy of it in the conference room next to the SLR office, and that's okay. where I stole it from. Um, Jeff Fowler, if you listen to this, I stole your copy. But I'm putting it back, so there's that. Um, but, yeah, so we have a copy of this at Veritas. If you ever want to buy one, there's almost always a, a, a full set at Half Price Books. Um, I recommend the 1991. It, it's funny. The What I think of as the big difference between the two is that in the 1952 version... Um, they only have Catholic um, author, uh, ca- like on the religious side, it's only Catholic authors. But then they add in uh, John Calvin in the 1991, so it's like, hey, Protestantism happened, and they add that in the 1991. In the 1950s, in the up 1950s until then, they thought it was a fad. It's exactly right. So, do you have any beef with the uh, attempt to like completely categorize and codify the Great Conversation? I know that's a bit of the the criticism of Adler. Yes. I've never read him enough to know if he thinks that what he's doing is the be-all, end-all, or if he no. comes at it with a certain amount of humility. No, there was another project at the same time called the Five-Foot Bookshelf, which was out of Harvard. Um, uh, Mortimer Adler is out of Columbia. And so uh, I, I think the end of both projects is the same, is the, this is going to sound high-minded, the democratization of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to you having to go to a university to learn the important things, Straight up, you just go to Encyclopedia Britannica and you get it. Um, I think it's had the opposite effect in that I I try and sound really pretentious by referencing Mortimer Adler as opposed to this being like a a thing that everyone uses and has access to. Um, I I don't view it as the end-all be-all, but I find it extremely helpful because Mm -hmm. I'm not as well-read as I should be. Um, And having the idea, I guess you just have to understand that Adler has a viewpoint in all of these essays. And so they're not totally objective, um, but they're helpful. But that's the whole thing with the reason it's a conversation is because it doesn't end. Cool. Right? Like a conversation has two sides to it and goes back and forth over the 25 centuries of written literature. And so us entering it is not to say, I have the answer on mathematics or matter or mechanics or medicine. It's that there are different viewpoints over time. I'm going to fall somewhere in that. Um, and I should be able to defend that if that's how I feel. And that's really helpful to have the list of yeah. questions, even though it's not exhaustive, because I've been trying to keep in my note card system. Um, an exhaustive list of what I call the, the my big rhetorical questions, like yeah. the questions that I really want the students to wrestle with. And I find that when I need to sit down and try to think about the big questions that I always use in class, um, uh, I, I'm just one man. But to have to have a list of these other things is very helpful. Uh, Did you know that ex- rhetoric is one of the great ideas? An example being like um, spear of the law, letter of the law. Yeah. That's a great conversation to have with students, and we talk about that when we're doing um, Christian knighthood yeah. um, and codes. Um, and the, so to have like a book that is talking about the gr- these great ideas 
Um, and then here, and I'm assuming that there are references to, That's what to who has talked Talk about, about these things in different ways. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I'm looking, um, of course, randomly opened up to the chapter 29 on God. And so the pages of references are 561 to 603. So 40 pages of references mm-hmm. to two works that are in the great books but that are a part of this conversation. Now, so we are do they also have essays or is it just, it just references? It opens with an essay. Got it. And with, the essay is the part that I found the most helpful but I also don't teach the books. Sure. So you all would probably find the references mm. super helpful. Now we're a classical Christian school. Um, how, well, how does it deal with matters of, of theology and faith? And Okay, so... Um, this may be no, it's fine. spinning off into a whole so other... So a decision, Adler made a decision to not include the Bible um, in his great books the reason he says he didn't include it is that there's no one agreed on translation. And so oh, cry out loud. Well, I mean, whatever it's what he says. And so there's no one agreed upon translation. And so for him to choose one is to make a more clear statement than it is for him to translate the works of the Greeks, sure. right? It means something for him to choose one. So he doesn't include it, mm. but he does reference it in, um, cause like when you think of the book that is most referenced in Western literature, it's going to be the Bible. Yeah. So, uh, the Bible is definitely a part of it. Um, Adler, um, he was a Thomist, so he he thought Thomas Aquinas was a big deal. Uh, oh, now I'm okay with <laughs> okay, problem solved. But he so but he was, wasn't Thomas Aquinas the one who after after he had lived a long straw. time was like totally straw. Well, yep, everything I said was was not good. He's no, totally not, not straw. good. He said that it was a heap of straw. Mm. I mean, he 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 said he said it was true, but it did not even come close to the talking about the depths of God mm. that that can be experienced in life. Yeah. Right. Um, so for anyone reading Aquinas, just keep that in your back pocket. <laughs> yeah. And Aquinas is a part of the great books. He gets two volumes because the Summa Theologica, I'm, I'm holding my hand up like you can see it, but it's very large is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Um, so uh, Mortimer Edler eventually converted, I believe, to Catholicism, but to Christianity at least. Um, and so the, I don't know, you cannot read Western literature without having some understanding of the Bible. That's right. You all, so many references will fly over your head. We got um, another one. Welcome to the team, Mortimer Adler. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does not say, uh, I mean, whatever. It is not a work of um, evangelism. It does not say Christianity sure. is the one true path. Here are ideas that fall under that. But truth is a person, and if you keep, if you are the heart that honestly seeks after truth, yep. and you honestly do it, you will get to the feet of God eventually. This is isn't that what's happened to C.S. Lewis? He yeah. yep. he re- he kept on reading the classical authors, and eventually said, "There is something common to these men, something that I am lacking." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, I'm looking through the ideas. So God was one in the first um, tome. The second one, sin, is one of the ideas. Truth is one of the ideas. So there are definitely religious or theological topics covered as part of this. Cool. Um, so go pick it up, I guess. I mean, uh, so again, if you work at Veritas. I'm just stealing yours. Yeah, yeah, you should actually. And again, I stole Veritas's. Oh. So I don't own a copy of this stuff because mm. it's like a couple hundred bucks to buy it. Um, uh, most reading plans to go through all of these great books take 10 years. And I think that. I like that as a metaphor for like don't don't try and read all of these at once. Take well, time. if we're to take your word as gospel, we should read through them twice. Yep. Sorry. So, so twenty years. Yeah. So the first time you years. do it, you haven't yeah. read them. Good. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So if you're really serious about this stuff, twenty years, get started. Cool. It'll be a. It's a life. It really is a it lifetime is, of yeah. learning. I'm still. I'm still learning. I, there's still a ton of. Is this your first time through the Republic? Yeah. Like I think that's. Cool. I'm not even through it. I, yeah. I mean, it's been. I have to read a bunch of other books in between, so I have to keep yeah. keep on having to backtrack and. It's, yeah. it's and tough not, to make it through. And I don't know, but not everything I read is, you know, 2,000 years old. But um, I don't know. It's good to include those books. Um, these are books that are accessible not just to people who teach them, but 
Man, to anyone. Anyone can pick these books up and access them. And not only that, but many of them are available for free. If you yes. get a Kindle, you're going to get a ton of these books just for freezies, and yep. then you can also find a good chunk of them on the Gutenberg Project yep. online because yep. they're out of copyright, and so they just put free versions online. You can print them at home and yep. then read them. Yep. Thanks, Bees. I think that's everything I got, but... This is good. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Y'all, y'all were the ones with the insightful comments, so... <laughs> well, Graham was. I'm still <laughs> I got 0 for 3. <laughs> No, you were um, one for three. I, I gave you Yeah, that three. was a pity point. Batting two for three. <laughs> well, this has been Classical Stuff Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, concerns, feedback, uh, criticisms, please email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. Give us, if you have things you just want to hear about, classical questions that you have, future podcasts, let us know. And we thank you for listening. Yeah, as of yet, no emails. Not and one. So we're just feeling kind of lonely. real lonely in yeah. there. Don't, don't mind an email. <laughs> we'll feedback. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye.